Thanks for downloading episode 10 of Development Drums, a podcast about development issues and policy. This is Owen Bader in Addis Ababa, and today I'm really pleased to welcome Paul Collier to Development Drums. Paul is a professor of economics at Oxford University, and he's the director of the Centre for the Study of African Economies. He's also one of a small group of celebrity development economists, and unusually manages to produce both accessible and policy-relevant writing, and basing that on rigorous analysis and evidence. Paul, welcome to Development Drums. Thanks for inviting me. We're going to talk later about your new book, uh, War, Guns and Votes, which will be published in the UK in March. And the new book sets out three specific policy proposals for how the rich countries can reduce conflict and accelerate development. And we'll come on to that later. But I'd like to set the scene by discussing your earlier book, The Bottom Billion, which was published uh, in 2007. And it's been a hugely influential work, uh, not just among professional economists, but also among more mainstream policymakers and thinkers. And I guess one of the important things about this book is that it's, it's short, it's readable, it's accessible to non-economists. What, why did you decide to do that? Oh, that's simple. Uh, I got frustrated with um, what I call gesture politics. Um, that is, developed country politicians... Um, producing policies which played well uh, in headlines in newspapers but were ineffective. And I realized that the only way to stop that was if um, politicians were faced by a more informed electorate, a more informed constituency of opinion. In a democracy, there's no substitute for building uh, informed constituency of opinion. And for that, you've got to reach people. And that's what... uh, the bottom billion has has done. Has it surprised you how successful it's been? Very much so. I mean, it's now, in English, it's, I think, sold over 100,000 copies. It's in 14 different languages. But the really satisfying thing is that my hypothesis turns out to have been right, because since writing that book, since governments know that their citizens, a lot of their citizens have read it, um, governments are paying much more attention to... Uh, to a more sort of serious range of policies. They're moving beyond gestures. So, broadly speaking, the bottom billion is in three parts. There's a a problem statement, a diagnosis, and then a set of policy prescriptions. Uh, So let's start with the problem statement. Who, who Who are the bottom billion that you're referring to? The bottom billion are a group of about 60 countries which add up to a population of about a billion people. So they're not literally the poorest billion people in the world wherever they might be. Um, People might be dirt poor in America, but they don't count um, in my bottom billion. So my bottom billion is a bunch of countries, uh, countries which are now amongst the poorest in the world. Maybe they weren't 40 years ago, but they're distinguished by having missed out on the growth process that most countries, including most developing countries, um, have experienced over the last 40 years. They missed out on this unprecedented phase of global prosperity. Uh, They stagnated where other countries grew, and so they fell behind, and a few of them fell apart. So it's that... um, characteristic of stagnation, which is, in a way, the sort of defining feature. And what's striking, then, about these countries that are stagnating and so diverging from the rest of the world is that um, it it doesn't feel as though we can sit back and relax about those and wait for time uh, to enable them to catch up. That's right. I think time is not on our side. As they diverge, as the gap widens between them and everybody else. Um, In some respects, it gets harder for them to break in to the global economy rather than easier. And so the the problem statement in the book is to try and get us to refocus away from this very broad sweep of defining development, which is what the MDGs were doing, as it were, 
5 billion people living in developing countries, 1 billion people in rich countries. Uh, instead, I want us to focus on the billion at the bottom who've diverged from everybody else. So I characterize the modern world as a sort of 1 billion, 4 billion, 1 billion world. 1 billion people, the lucky us. 4 billion people living in countries that have been converging with the, the billion at the top, converging at amazing rates. Now, there are still a lot of poor people in those countries, but they're living in countries which offer hope. Whereas the billion at the bottom are living in countries where there isn't credible hope. And if you imagine yourself living in one of these countries in the bottom billion, of course, you're in one at the moment in Ethiopia. Uh, if the history has been of poverty and stagnation, the only way you can go up is if somebody else goes down. And so um, the, uh, the environment in these countries tends to be pretty confrontational and aggressive because people tend to see life as a zero-sum game. So one of the things you're saying is that aid agencies um, should focus on these 58 or 60 countries, even though um, in countries like China and India there are um, maybe half of the world's one and a half billion people living on less than $1.25 a day. Uh, live in China and India. You're saying that, in a sense, those are those people are in countries that are going to make it anyway, and that what aid, aid agencies need to do is refocus on the countries yes, where, where the bottom billion live. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, let me just have one remark there, which is that um, we take this very short-term snapshot view of poverty, poverty in this year or something like that, whereas we need to think of poverty in a dynamic sense. I mean, the history of, say, international migration over the centuries has been people being perfectly prepared to, to as it was, make sacrifices in their own lives if their children um, can have a better life. That was the history of emigration to North America in the 19th century. People were willing to live in miserable conditions for the rest of their lives as immigrants in order that their children can have a better chance. And that was a dynamic view of poverty. Poverty is, as it were, tolerable if there's credible hope that your children will grow up in a different society. And that's the case now with China and India, where people are very poor. Many people are very poor, but there's a credible prospect that their children will grow up in a transformed society. And the bottom billion are not offering that credible hope. And, uh, and so the challenge is to provide credible hope in those societies. Okay, so that's the problem statement. Let's, let's move on to the, the diagnosis section. And you make an important point in the book, I think, which is that there is no single explanation uh, for why these countries are diverging from the rest of the world. There are uh, a series of different things that are wrong, and they're different in different countries. Um, but you give four examples, four key, uh, what you describe as traps. Um, and they're traps in the sense that once you're in them, it's hard to break out of them. But do you want to tell us about those four traps that the countries of the bottom billion are in? Yeah, sure. I think the first of all, um, I've been a practitioner of development long enough to have seen the f several of the fads, um, and it's a very fad-prone area in which, at any one time, we think there's one big answer to the problem of development, um, but every decade we come up with a different answer, and I think that's because there is no one big answer. Um, so the, the four traps that I suggest, which I don't mean are comprehensive, that's it, but I think they're the big four, um, and, they're di they're, and they're different. Uh, so one is the, the trap of violent conflict. Once you're in violent conflict, these violent conflicts, which are always internal, go on for a long time, they destroy the economy. Even when you get out of them, there's a heightened risk of going back into them. Uh, the second trap um, is geographic. It's being landlocked and resource scarce and with bad neighbors. And if, if, you're, if you have that combination, which of course um, the, the <laughs> is the case with Ethiopia, landlocked, no valuable natural resources, 
pretty aggressive neighbourhood, an impoverished neighbourhood, it's very hard, it's not impossible, but it's very hard to come up with strategies for transformation, even to middle income level, let alone to develop level. Mm. A third trap um, is, is paradoxically is the trap of having valuable natural resources under the ground. And why is that a trap? It's because the politics can turn very sour. Um, it becomes uh, a, uh, a political contest for the control of the resource rents. In extreme, that turns to violence, and so it becomes a conflict trap. But well short of that, you get a very dysfunctional politics in which uh, politicians are diverting their effort away from supplying the public goods that the, that the country and the society needs to contesting control of the loot. Uh, and then the final trap is just having very weak governance in a small, typically ethnically divided country where it just takes, once you've got into that syndrome, it just takes a long time um, to get um, uh, governance improved and policies improved. So we've, you've identified um, these four main traps, the four big ones, conflict, uh, being landlocked uh, with, in a poor neighbourhood, uh, the, the paradoxical one of having access to natural resources, which uh, you would tend to think would be a good thing rather than a bad thing, and, and the problems of poor governance. And say something about how, how this creates a trap or a, a cycle. For example, I think an important, a compelling part of the story is that, is, is that these things are difficult to escape without some kind of external assistance. Yes, and I think that's why I use the language trap, that once you're in them, it's, uh, it's the, I wouldn't say there's no way out, but it's hard to get out. So, for example, with violent conflict, the legacy of violent conflict is unfortunately a heightened risk of more violent conflict. Um, with uh, natural resource uh, rents, once you get um, crooked and dysfunctional politicians leading the country, it's very hard to get out of that. Um, the landlock without uh, uh, valuable natural resources or good neighbours, very obviously that's a highly persistent feature, a structural feature of an economy. And the poor governance in a small country, what we find is that, again statistically, the the time taken to, as it were, re internally reform out of that is 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 many decades. Um, it's much easier if the society is bigger. There are scale economies in uh, institutions, um, but if it starts small and badly governed, it tends to stay that way. Okay, so we've we've talked about the problem statement, uh, which is that there are about. 58 countries containing about a billion people that are diverging uh, from the rest of the world, and about the diagnosis, which is these series of, uh, of traps. Let's turn to the policy solutions that you recommend in the bottom billion. And you're essentially advocating that, without denigrating the aid industry, you're saying that aid alone is, uh, is, is probably not the most important thing for these particular countries and these particular problems, and that other kinds of intervention are going to be needed if we're going to help these countries uh, lift themselves out of, out of these traps. Um, do you want to say something about those, di those different kinds of intervention? Yes, I mean, I, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll pull in something that I put in the, in the next book, which is Wars, Guns and Votes. Um, and this took my thinking beyond the bottom billion, but in Wars, Guns and Votes, the analogy I use is with how America developed Europe, redeveloped Europe after the Second World War. Because to my mind, that's the last time in which a rich region of the world got serious, really serious, about developing another region. Um, we have to go back 60 years before we get policies that were serious. And then we think, what did America do to redevelop Europe after the Second World War? 
We know why it got serious. It got serious because there was the Soviet Union hovering on the edge of Western Europe, and Europe in the late 1940s was a fragile mess. So we know why America got serious, but now let's look at what did it do. Yes, it had a big aid program, Marshall Aid. So aid was then was part of the solution. Uh, it was a big program, but it was actually a minor part of the solution. What else did America do? Well, it totally reversed its trade policy. Before the Second World War, America's trade policy had been highly protectionist. After the Second World War, it opens its markets to Europe, as a strategy for developing Europe, and it commits itself to that opening by setting up the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is now the WTO. So total reversal of trade policy. What else? Total reversal of American security policy. Before the Second World War, American policy was isolationist. After the Second World War, it puts over 100,000 troops in Europe, keeps them there for 40 years, locks into the, that with a commitment through the formation of NATO. So, big aid program, total reversal of trade policy, total reversal of security policy, and finally governance. Total reversal of American policy towards the governance of other countries. Before the Second World War, absolutely binding policy of non-interference. America won't even join the League of Nations. After the Second World War, it sets up the United Nations, it sets up the International Monetary Fund, it sets up the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, it encourages Europe to form the European Community. All of these are institutions for the mutual support of governance, especially targeted on improving governance in Europe. So that's the waterfront of policies that an America used, aid, trade, security, governance. I think it's still the right waterfront of policies. Of course, the details of how we use policies in reversing the divergence of the bottom billion are going to be different. The problem's harder, but the range of policies we have to use is still the same. So we'll talk in a second as we talk about your new book uh, about the security and governance agendas. Let's let's just quickly uh, look at the trade agenda as an example of, of what you're saying in the bottom billion. Um, what kind of uh, of trade policy do you? I mean, particularly given that the Doha round is uh, seems to be deadlocked. What kind of trade policy do you think the uh, industrialized countries should be pursuing? Yeah, I think trade policy is a good example of where ideology has got in the way of sensible, pragmatic approaches. So on the one hand, there are the sort of free trade ideologues who just want to get to global free trade as soon as possible. And on the other are the protectionist ideologues who believe that uh, the bottom billion should protect themselves, their own domestic markets against uh, global capitalism. And I think both of those are just deeply misguided. That the bottom billion need to be shoehorned into global markets, and in order for that to happen, they need to be protected from those developing seeded in building up um, strong agglomerations of manufacturing. So need protection, but need protection from markets from uh, the big successes like China, um, rather than protection in their own markets. Their own markets are small and stagnant, uh, and so uh, uh, not, don't offer uh, a road to industrialization. And the, and the point here is that because there are scale economies in, in the production of a lot of these manufactured goods, that if you're already big and trading in world markets, then you have an inherent competitive advantage. And the only way that countries from the bottom billion can, can join in the game, as it were, is if, as if someone gives them a, a, a way to, to expand and, and compete, and then over time they won't need that uh, preference uh, later on. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, in fact, uh, just yesterday we launched the uh, UNIDO Industrial Development Report, which I wrote. It's called Breaking In and Moving Up, and New Industrial Challenges for the Bottom Billion. Um, and that's the argument that um, in manufacturing, there are scale economies that come from clusters. Uh, for example, um, two-thirds of the world's buttons are made in one Chinese town. 
um, why have all the firms clustered together? Um, because by clustering together, their costs come down. So imagine being the first button manufacturer in in Africa. You're going to you're going to go bankrupt, and so the clusters never form. So in order to get over that threshold where the uh, the clusters get formed. Um, the countries of the bottom billion need some temporary protection in our markets from these successful agglomerations um, against which, at the moment, they, are, they can't compete. So, to some extent, the U.S. is already doing this with the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. Is that the kind of thing that you're uh, suggesting? Yeah, Africa Growth and Opportunity Act has worked. That um, it's not been enforced for many years, but over that period, African garments exports to America have increased sevenfold. But the devil with these special trade deals, privileged access, is in the detail. Europe's had a scheme called Everything But Arms, completely ineffective in encouraging garments exports from Africa to Europe. In fact, over that period, garment exports have fallen. And the, I think the key reason for that was that uh, the rules of origin are very different. Those are the, just, just to explain to people that that means that uh, in order to make advantage, uh, take advantage of the policy, you have to show where all the different uh, components of the thing you're producing have come from, and that's very difficult that's right. to do. And the European scheme requires that there's a very high element of local content. Um, Europe is still fixated on the idea of deep vertical integration within a single country, whereas modern manufacturing for the last 25 years has been moving away from deep vertical integration to what's called trade in tasks, where a country just adds a rather small percentage of value added and passes it on to another country, which adds another small percentage. And so potentially trade in tasks is very good news for um, small, poor countries to break in. They only have to develop the skills of a single task instead of a whole process. But for that, they need generous rules of origin. AGOA gave generous rules of origin to Africa. Everything but arms didn't. AGOA worked. Everything but arms failed. And so presumably part of the problem here is that the people who work on... You, you talked about trade, security and governance, that the people who are most involved in setting policies um, in those areas in the rich nations are not people who know much about developing countries or who have much of an interest in them. That's right. I mean, we just haven't got joined up policy and we need it so that the development ministries need to rethink of themselves as exactly that, ministries responsible for helping the development process rather than just as aid ministries. And that's starting to happen. In response to the bottom billion, I was invited over to the Netherlands by the Dutch government, a meeting chaired by the Deputy Prime Minister, who orchestrated all the key ministries, and we spent a day just posing the question, well, how can we join up, how could the Netherlands join up its different policies, its security policy, its trade policy, its aid policy, its approach towards governance? And that's the sort of thing that needs to happen. Let's just, before we come on to your new book, War, Guns and Votes, let's just um, pause on aid and the role of aid. Um, there's been a slew of books recently uh, saying not only that aid doesn't work for various reasons, but actually saying that aid does more harm than good, that it un particularly that it undermines the accountability and legitimacy of government. As I'm hearing you and as I read your books, you're not saying that. You're saying that aid may not be the most important thing in these countries, but that it can and does play a role that's positive rather than negative. Is that right? It is. Um, I think the attention that aid has got, both by its advocates and its critics, exaggerates its importance. And we need to divert attention to these other areas, trade, governance, security, which I think have so much more potential uh, if only we could get energy put into them. On aid, um, I think uh, there are issues of uh, accountability and governance. Um, aid doesn't have to be a force undermining, but it can be. And uh, I think aid donors have been rather uh, pusillanimous uh, in not um, trying to uh, offset the 
the weakening of accountability that aid can cause with pressure to, to improve accountability. And the accountability that's important is, of course, not accountability of governments to the donors. It's accountability of governments to their own citizens. Um, so donors have no right, in my view, to insist on accountability to themselves, but they have a very important uh, duty to insist on accountability to citizens. You're listening to Development Drums, and my guest today is Paul Collier, Professor of Economics at Oxford University. Paul, let's turn now to your new book, Wars, Guns and Votes, which is about to be published in the UK. And let me say first that I really enjoyed the book. Um, Like The Bottom Billion, it's written for a non-specialist audience. And you've written it very much in the style of a swashbuckling economic researcher um, investigating the truth about, particularly about, in this case, politics and conflict. And I guess like The Bottom Billion, this book seemed to me to have a, a problem statement, a diagnosis and a set of policy proposals. Um, And the problem statement I I learned a lot from uh, and was rather depressed by. Um, And I think it's important to to understanding the book to get this on the table. The evidence that you produce is that in poor countries, instead of democracy forcing governments to behave well, uh, to pursue good policies, to win votes, that democracy drives governments in the other direction. Is that is that a correct statement of how you see the problem that you're trying to solve? Yes, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate. I think democracy can be a force for good in these societies. So I don't, I don't want to be misunderstood there. But I think we've uh, encouraged a very lopsided form of democracy, basically just elections. Uh, elections without any of the supporting institutional infrastructure, which we in the rich countries take for granted and so neglected to attend to. And elections minus all this supporting institutional infrastructure um, doesn't lead to accountability and legitimacy. It can actually undermine and increase proneness to political violence. And I show that, unfortunately, that seems to be the case. So in some ways, this echoes the problem statement in the bottom billion, which emphasised that you, it, this isn't just a matter of time. I mean, I, had, I think you say somewhere in the book that you had taken the view, as, as I had, that these are, these are long, slow processes, and I didn't think that there was much that we could do to, um, uh, to intervene to accelerate them. Um, but what you're saying, as I understand it, is that the establishment of democratic and accountable, accountable government in these countries isn't just a matter of time. I mean, what you're saying, isn't it, is that these countries have been led up a cul-de-sac and that actually... That's, ab- that's absolutely right. I mean, it, and it, it, was, it was once I reached that pretty depressing conclusion that I, I decided to, to write this book because it's, it's a darker book than the bottom billion. Um, it's facing what I came to believe was a, an, an unpalatable reality. And it, I only decided to do that once I reached the conclusion that a lot of these countries were in a cul-de-sac rather than um, gradually uh, moving along a path um, out, of, out of problem. So the diagnosis is um, summarised at the end that you that the countries um, of the bottom billion are too large to be nations and yet too small to be states, uh, which is a, a compelling phrase. Tell, tell us what you mean by that. Yes, um, the uh, too large to be nations because um, very often in these societies people's basic identity is subnational. It's ethnic rather than seeing themselves as citizens of the country, first and foremost. And um, when, when people's identity is subnational rather than national, it's much harder to cooperate to provide the public goods 
which any healthy society needs. Core business of government is to orchestrate cooperation to provide public goods. And if people don't see themselves as belonging to a common society, all citizens of the same nation, um, then that's very much harder. Now, a few political leaders have managed to forge a sense of national unity, uh, but most haven't. Most have tended to play upon ethnic divisions so that over the last 40 years, these societies have become more socially fragmented rather than less. So that's what I mean by too large to be nations. Um, too small to be states, because these societies as economies are absolutely tiny. Uh, we tend to view them by population, where they're still typically pretty small, but the relevant um, unit of account for any economic activity is the size of the economy. And as economies, these places are just tiny. And why does that matter? Because the provision of a lot of public goods is a scale economy's activity. That's what public goods are. And so in tiny societies, the cost of providing public goods is very high uh, relative to what the society can afford. And so public goods are going to be underprovided. There are two. I was struck by your, the precision with which you calibrate this. You say that the point at which uh, you're rich enough to, uh, for democracy to begin to lead to better governance is an, an annual income of $2,700 per person per year. Well, I don't want to uh, go to the wall for that. That's what the statistics um, tends to come out with is that below that level of income, $2,700 a year, in the last 30 years, democracy has tended to be associated with an increase in political violence rather than a decrease, whereas over $2,700 a year, uh, democracy has tended to be associated with reduced violence. So uh, the historical pattern, as it were, reveals um, that sort of threshold, just judged on the criterion of political violence. Um, there are some notable exceptions to that. India, which is well under $2,700 per year, has managed to develop a well-functioning democracy which has delivered public goods. But I think one of the reasons for that, why is India an exception, is that it's huge. Um, it's, uh, there are more people in, in, in India than in all 53 of the African countries combined. Um, many more people. And so India has scale uh, in a way that a country of the bottom billion doesn't. India is not part of the bottom billion. So a key part of the the, the public goods that are not being provided in these uh, in, in these states, these nations that are, are too small or too poor to be effective states, is, is this set of ideas of accountability and and legitimacy. And one point that I that you made, which I I thought was really interesting, is that unlike other public goods, um, these checks and balances, accountability and legitimacy, are ones that the government has no interest whatsoever in providing, uh, whereas other kinds of public goods the government might be trying to provide but perhaps be too small or too ineffective or too poor to provide. Checks and balances are a public good that if you don't have them in the first place, no government is going to be interested in, in putting them in place. That's right. I mean, that's slightly overstated in that um, some checks and balances, it makes sense for a far-sighted government to put in place against itself. Um, that's, for example, the history of the, the government of the Netherlands, which discovered that by putting in checks and balances against itself back in the 17th century, it was able to borrow much more cheaply. Mm. Um, and that enabled it to win the war against the Habsburg Empire. So um, some governments have recognized the need um, to build checks and balances, but mostly checks and balances have come because of pressure from citizens. Um, one of the things that has provoked um, pressure from citizens has been taxation. Um, and uh, one of the, of course, one of the, the reasonable critiques of aid is that by 
reducing the, the need for taxation, as with natural resources, both aid and natural resources reduce citizen pressure for accountability. That's why it's legitimate for aid donors to provide a counter-pressure um, for accountability to citizens to try and offset that. Although, as you said earlier, too often the donors are actually providing accountability to them rather than pressure for accountability to the citizens of the country. That's right. They've just they've just got muddled. They've just got muddled up. Um, uh, they've 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 uh, they've no right to uh, demand accountability to themselves, um, but they have got an, a duty, not just a right, but a duty, to try and substitute the pressure that reduced taxation implies. They need to substitute for that some pressure for accountability to citizens. Before we come on to the uh, solutions that you recommend, can. Just explain to people listening the idea that democracy um, actually increases uh, or can in some circumstances increase political violence, uh, because I think some people will find that counterintuitive. Yes, I mean, I think there are various ways in which, I mean, statistically this seems to happen, and the question is why. And I think there are various ways. One is that um, incumbent presidents have learned how to steal elections so that um, they use all sorts of illegitimate tactics, bribery, intimidation, ballot fraud, and because of that an election doesn't establish legitimacy of government. Um, on the contrary, people feel cheated. Um, but the other is that uh, even a small amount of democracy is inconsistent with the time Honored, I was going to say time-honoured, time-dishonoured way in which um, uh, autocrats stay in power, uh, and that is the preemptive purge. Um, for at least 2,000 years, autocrats have been uh, staying in power um, by uh, looking around to see who might potentially cause trouble uh, and jailing them or killing them in advance of them doing anything. So it's preemptive. Um, obviously, that sort of preemptive behavior is incompatible with any degree of the rule of law. And so even modest degrees of, um, of democracy uh, reduce the, uh, the ability to purge preemptively. And we can show statistically that that is indeed the case. Um, uh, even very limited degrees of democracy radically cut down on purges. Um, but that weakens the ability of autocrats to keep the lid on political uh, violence. And so uh, so the lid gets blown off. So let's, let's turn to the, again, the three proposals that uh, Wars, Guns and Votes makes to, to respond to this uh, this cycle of, of violence uh, from which it's difficult to see these countries escaping. And you use um, the analogy of a malaria vaccine. You, it makes perfect sense that international finance and the, the global community should invest in the public good of, of research and development for malaria vaccine. So why shouldn't the international system provide public goods to these states which are too poor or too small to provide them from themselves. And, and in particular, various kinds of checks and balances in the democratic process and various kinds of, of security that could be provided from outside. Is that a, is that a fair summary of, uh, of, of what you're It saying? is indeed, Owen. It's, it's a very fair summary, yeah. yeah. So you've got three specific proposals. The first is a, a democracy guarantee. Um, so this is this is your uh, this sounded to me like the judo idea where you take a negative energy and you turn it into something useful. You're 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 saying that we should turn the threat of political violence into something useful rather than something destructive. Uh, tell tell us how that would work. I hadn't thought of the judo analogy, but you're quite right. That's the idea. Um, the uh, the idea is that um, the it's to try and counter presidents using illicit tactics to win elections. And of course, that's become disturbingly common in a lot of the bottom billion, is presidents cheating at elections through intimidation, ballot fraud, and such like. 
Um, so how can that be countered? It's not going to be countered by us flying in and bombing these places. Um, there's no appetite for that, very obviously. There's only one force that incumbent presidents are genuinely scared of, uh, and that is their own militaries. And so the idea is to create a sort of red card, green card system for when is it uh, wrong and when is it okay for uh, a country's own military um, to uh, displace a government. And usually it's wrong, so that we would need to hold up a red card. And the idea of a democracy charter is that a government which signed up to the charter would get a commitment from the international community to use our best efforts to put down a coup d'etat against a democratically elected government. So the way this would work is that, is that there would be some kind of democracy standard and a government that said that they were willing to implement that standard and were actually doing so would then have some kind of protection from the international community that would stop them from That's being right. displaced by a coup. That's right, and uh, the, that's a pretty credible arrangement because, for example, for many years the French were doing it within Francophone Africa. It's militarily usually very feasible um, to see off coup d'etat, and indeed, once you've got that commitment in place, um, the incidence of coups would go down dramatically. I'm there wouldn't be coups against democratic governments. I'm kind of I surprised think. you're saying that that would be credible. I mean, given that the aid industry has for several decades now made all kinds of threats to withdraw money from developing countries and then usually not followed through, why would... I mean, it seems to me much more difficult politically for a government, say the UK or France, to send a bunch of troops into a a faraway country of which they know little, to put down a coup. Um, I'm just wondering how you would make that a really so. credible uh, threat. Oh, first of all, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a short, sharp intervention. It's one, it's, an, it's, a, it's, an, it's one action rather than anything sustained, whereas with aid, uh, there's no credibility on aid because um, there's no continuity in aid policy. So donors typically half and puff, but they don't stick to what they say for, for more than a month or two. Um, in the case of um, military intervention to put down a coup d'etat, uh, you, you wouldn't have to stick to it for very long. You just have to do it in the first week. Um, there's a lot of legitimacy to this. For example, the African Union routinely condemns uh, coup d'etat against democratic governments. It's just that at the moment there's seldom much follow-through. Um, as I say, for years the French were following through um, uh, it's only in the last decade that they stopped doing so. It's really since Chirac, isn't it, that they start? Yes, that's right, exactly. So what about a regional solution to this? Could the Africa Union here in Addis Ababa uh, agree a charter of democracy and then collectively agree to intervene in each other's situations in the event of a coup? I think there are, the main problem with that is logistical, that um, African Union doesn't have... Um, credible logistics to enforce the defense against coups. Um, I think, of course, the, the chair of the African Union is at the moment uh, Colonel Gaddafi, which doesn't um, uh, also inspire that much confidence. Um, so I think the, the more credible um, ways of getting uh, military um, to put down coups that would rely upon some combination of the European Rapid Reaction Force and the uh, the new American force in Africa, AFRICOM. Um, this would be a perfectly legitimate role for them. I don't see how anybody could object to getting a, a gang of colonels um, out of the presidential office uh, when a democratic government has been uh, thrown out by uh, by the military. Especially in a situation where that country has, as it were, signed up for that protection. Exactly. I, I, don't see, I don't see any issue of legitimacy whatsoever uh, in doing that. Let's move, let's move on to the second of your policy proposals, if we may, which is about probity and public spending. 
Um, and this is an issue dear to my heart. I began in development uh, coming from the British Treasury, uh, where I was working on public financial management. So I, I, I feel this quite keenly. Your, your argument is that, um, that the external uh, donors, the, the industrialized countries, should be um, pushing harder to improve public financial management in developing countries, both by providing technical assistance um, and through some kind of governance conditionality that uh, aid wouldn't flow through their system unless that system meets a certain kind of financial uh, management standard. What's, and what struck me about this is that it didn't feel very new to me. I mean, it seems to me that we've been trying to do this for decades and it hasn't worked. I think the um, what is new is the proposal of um, of, of putting integrity into that effort by an independent verification system which judges whether a country's budget system uh, is sufficiently watertight um, to, for budget support to be channeled through it. It's separating out that assessment from uh, the decision whether to, to put money in. You need an independent, as it were, audit verification system which judges whether the system is, is robust. You need a technical assistance effort which gets countries up to that standard. Um, uh, so there's, there's actually sort of three different um, decision points. There's the verification, there's the technical assistance effort, and then conditional on those two is putting money through. And the, again, the, 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 the key issue here is to, is to see that it's not a matter just of accountability to, to British taxpayers. It's a matter of accountability to the citizens of these countries that if that money leaks, it's not that it's wasted. That's the least of the problem. If it leaks, it's captured. And it's captured by the very people who are the problem in these countries. And so inadvertently, by not enforcing clean governance, you're empowering the very people who are the heart of the governance problem. Right. And I think what's attractive about this is, uh, is the worry not about looking after or safeguarding aid from a particular donor, but worrying about how standards of financial accountability for the country as a whole, for resources, whether from aid or natural resources or from domestic tax revenue, are used. And I think that's right. But I, that's I, right. We've been trying to we've been trying to protect our own taxpayers, whereas actually we should be trying to protect uh, the citizens of the country. But if there were an international standard of public finance that governments had to meet, presumably there'd be a lot of developing governments that would fall short. Wouldn't the result be that there'd be almost no government-to-government -government aid? Well, first of all, I would think what you're saying is saying that at the moment a lot of governments don't meet um, anything like uh, our own standards of financial probity, and yet we're giving them money. Um, presumably our own standards of financial probity are not there for decoration, they're there because we recognize important. So um, obviously uh, we don't want to uh, introduce a system which pushes uh, governments or countries off a cliff. And so there'd have to be some transitional arrangements. Um, Perhaps. Typically what might happen is that uh, if uh, external evaluation verification deemed that standards were not adequate, what that would then trigger would not be a cut in aid, but uh, the supply of, uh, of a lot of technical assistance to fix the problem, followed by another verification exercise in three or four years' time uh, to see whether um, standards were now met. If they weren't met, then again, it's not that the money will be denied to the country, it will be denied, denied to the government as budget support. And there are other ways in which aid can reach ordinary people. And, and what would those be? So if, if the government wasn't giving aid uh, through the developing country government, what, what other channels would you be suggesting? Well, the channel that I uh, propose in uh, Wars, Guns and Votes is what I call independent service authorities 
which is splitting up the um, which is a, which I think is a mechanism appropriate for environments where the government is a long long way short of supplying basic services through conventional re means um, for example Haiti where I'm just off next week um, 90 percent of basic services are supplied outside the government sector completely. They're supplied by private sector, by NGOs, by churches. And what an independent service authority would do would be to channel public money to those suppliers um, under a, uh, a standard set of government uh, policy guidelines and with monitoring and evaluation of the suppliers so that they would face yardstick competition against each other. So and that would be a mechanism of getting a lot of money. It's in effect, that's a sort of ring-fenced budget support where you build an institution that uh, the donors can trust to channel a lot of money through, even though the conventional government ministries um, are not um, financially fit and proper to take large sums of money. You envisage that this would be done with the acquiescence and support of the government of the day. This wouldn't be done, as it were, despite the government. It would be done with the government. It couldn't be done any other way than with the acquiescence of the government. Um, but, uh, but I think you can often get the acquiescence of government. In, in Haiti, I've got the, the Minister of Health told me he was really very keen on the idea. Um, uh, in, uh, in Britain, I've got Oxfam urging me to come up with, the, let's implement this in, um, in DRC, because they recognize at the moment there isn't a way of getting um, effective service delivery to desperately needy people. So it's something that governments can support, it's something that uh, NGOs can support. And what do you think the exit strategy would be from this? I mean, do you envisage that these would be temporary arrangements and that gradually those would what become the health ministry or the education ministry in the end? Or do you think these things would continue? I don't see any reason why uh, we have to insist that the only long-term model is to build sort of Scandinavia in the 1950s. Everywhere doesn't have to look like that. There are many different ways of getting... Uh, an institutional architecture where public money can fund basic service provision. And we just have to, to stop trying to fit everything into one sort of 1950s framework and recognize that we need to experiment with alternative models, some of which may be much more appropriate for these environments, not just in the short term, but in the long term. And of course, they'll evolve. There's a lot of institutional variation around the world as where institutions evolve to fit um, local circumstances. And so we shouldn't be insisting that they all look, they all share this sort of colonial model. But this kind of model that you're talking about, a, a, a linking agency that links the government, the private sector, civil society, that hasn't really been, there isn't really a model for that anywhere, is there? I mean, is, you're suggesting that we experiment with something that would, that would be new. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, and, and the spirit is one of experiment. It might not work. But we shouldn't pretend that the experiment would have a high cost because in some environments, the present model is certainly not working. So let's try something else. Okay, so we've, we've talked about the first two of your three policy proposals, uh, namely the democracy guarantee, firstly, and then secondly, enforcing probity in public spending. Let, let's turn now to your third proposal, which is about the international supply of security. And your argument is that security is one of those public goods that many nations are too poor to supply adequately. And your proposal is... Um, is partly that donors should impose a kind of a tax on military spending to bring down military spending in a region. Can you explain how that would work? Yeah, I mean, it's a, um, it's a recognition that security is enormously important. It's an absolutely basic public good. Without that, it's very hard to get development. These societies are sort of structurally insecure quite often. Um, and there are various things we can do. Faced with structural insecurity, governments um, do try and spend money on their own militaries. It's not a very good solution to providing security, and it has a big downside, which is that um, neighboring governments then feel threatened and so create, increase their military spending. There are, as it were, 
arms races in Lilliput uh, as, as countries uh, edge up military spending against each other. Um, and because of that effect of, other, of neighbors being forced to, to sort of emulate, um, the, the increase in military by one country is a regional public bad. Um, it's a bit like perpetrating a disease or something. It, right, it, it's it, a form it, of pollution. In other words. Yes, pollution. It affects the whole neighborhood badly. Uh, and we know standard economics, what to do with that. You, you tax it and you try and discourage it. And so it's in the interest of the whole region um, to, uh, to, as well, to introduce a tax um, which, uh, which discourages the public, the regional public bad. Um, and so the way to do that is to say, well, above a level, um, a government's free, of course, to spend whatever it likes on military, but if it does, um, it will pay a penalty in reduced aid, and that aid will be redistributed to other countries. So it's not that the region loses at all, it's just that the region is then empowered with an incentive system which lowers overall the level of military spending by discouraging regional public bad. And, and finally, you also have a proposal for uh, getting the UN Peacebuilding Commission involved, especially in post-conflict situations. Can you explain how that would work? The role of the Peacebuilding Commission um, which is specifically in post-conflict societies, where I suggest, is that um, we need to recognize in post-conflict societies, first of all, that the historical record is dismal. 40% of these societies go back into conflict within a decade. We must be able to do better than that relatively easily. Why are they so fragile in that first decade? Because um, a successful... Um, move to, to sustain peace depends upon actions by three different players. One is the provision of peacekeeping troops, international peacekeeping troops, and I show that there's good evidence, I think, that peacekeeping troops are pretty effective. But that's a decision typically by the Security Council. Secondly, there's a need for big and sustained post-conflict aid. After all, the Marshall Plan redeveloped Europe. There's a need for equivalent big programs of aid in post-conflict reconstruction. But that's a decision by the major donors. And the third key decision uh, point is the post-conflict government. It can either be inclusive or divisive. It can either be honest or corrupt. Whether it's honest and inclusive or divisive and corrupt matters enormously for whether the peace is sustained. And so my idea is that um, these three decisions, by the Security Council, by the donors, and by the post-conflict government, the interdependence and the long-term nature of these, of these decisions should be recognized in mutual commitments. The Security Council should commit for a decade of security. The donors should commit for a decade of aid and the post-conflict government should commit to a decade of inclusion and honesty. And how how would those mutual commitments how would those mutual commitments be enforced? I'm I'm not sure I can envisage the the institutional framework within which these they're commitments are being made. They're self-enforcing. Once they're mutual, they're self-enforcing because the interdependence is explicit. If the um, Security Council were to pull out troops unilaterally when they were still needed, the donors and the post-conflict government would be in a position to say, hey, this is breaching your commitment. This is letting down a, a tripartite agreement. If the donors decided that they'd pull out of lending the money because they were short of money, this would be a breach um, of a commitment. If the post-conflict government decided that it was going to be corrupt, this would be a clear breach of a commitment, and it could be disciplined by uh, the uh, change in behaviour, the, the change in the commitments of the uh, of the other two parties. So, once you've got a, a set of three commitments, they reinforce each other. It seems to me that you're trying to find a, a middle ground between two solutions that many of us find unpalatable. One is 
a kind of interventionism regime change, um, which I a kind of liberal imperialism that was in Tony Blair's um, Chicago speech. Uh, so that's the that's one extreme, and the other extreme is the um, is non-intervention, non-interference, the Westphalian um, doctrine. And what you're trying to do is is describe a middle ground that is uh, in which security is provided as a as a global public good, but in a way that is neither uh, in a way that isn't too interventionist. Is that a fair characterization of your? Of, of the I, I, I hope I hope it's a fair characterization of of all my work. Both the bottom billion and war guns and votes are an attempt to build a consensus in middle ground. They're an attempt, but they're an attempt to do it by facing reality. All too often, the middle ground has actually been fragile ground because it's been based on comfortable illusions. For the middle ground to be robust. It has to be built on secure facing of reality. In order to change reality, we first have to face it. Uh, and you make a chilling analogy in your book between the situation we face now and 1919. And in 1919, you observed that the dangers were amorphous, difficult to, to characterize, and we didn't understand them, we didn't face reality, and we didn't take them on. And the result, of course, over the following 20 years was a financial crisis and then um, a, a major war, which eventually forced the United States, as you described earlier, to, to make a, a, a set of changes across a range of policies. Um, now, are you optimistic that this time around, if we are in 1919, or perhaps we're in 1929, now with the financial cra crash coming on around us, um, do you think that we're going that it's going to take another catastrophe before we uh, face these challenges, or or do you think that we can do it better this time round? I'm reasonably optimistic, um, uh, but the main reason is that the cost of getting it right is really no greater than the cost of getting it wrong. Um, I mean, the long-term cost of getting it wrong is enormous. Um, uh, the long-term cost of getting it wrong in 1919 was horrendous. Um, we got it right in 1948. Um, it cost, but uh, the cost of getting it right in the case of uh, providing hope for the bottom billion is, is trivial um, relative to uh, the benefit. Um, there's been to date a failure of understanding rather than um, a failure to find the resources. And so I'm, I'm reasonably confident that uh, understanding can be built up and that will be the basis for action. It's an alliance between compassion and self-interest, um, which uh, again, I hope is a, a hallmark of the bottom billion. Oh, I hope so too. My guest today has been Paul Collier, the author of The Bottom Billion, whose new book, War, Guns and Votes, is published in the UK on March the 5th. Paul, thanks for being part of Development Drums. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. This has been Development Drums. To find more episodes of Development Drums, go to developmentdrums.org, where you can also add your comments to the show and where you'll find links and readings about today's discussion. You can also subscribe to Development Drums in iTunes. If you do that, it means that it will be downloaded automatically to your computer or to your iPod whenever there is a new edition available. It's free to subscribe in iTunes. You just go to the iTunes store, choose Podcasts, and then search for Development Drums. So from me, Owen Bader in Ethiopia, thank you for listening to Development Drums. to me.
Oh! 